0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: So I am this morning in a Manhattan hotel room because we took, my wife and I took a overnight trip up to New York for, for an event. And we had plans this morning to be, where we were like, oh, Scott, you can record Rational Security and your wife, Liz, can do a workout or a yoga or something here in the hotel room while we're waiting. And then we realized in Manhattan, the hotel rooms aren't big enough for both of those activities. <laughs> so so I'm literally taking up all the space with my little podcast studio on this desk. It's like quite unique. I always forget the experience of the New York hotel room.
2: Greatest city in the world.
1: How hot is it in Manhattan? Right it now? was extremely hot last night. We were, you know, we walked through like a span of these village to get to our event and i was like "Ooh, it's steamy it's just very muggy um yeah. but i feel like that's like the new york summer experience more than anything else is the mugginess that kind of seeps
3: its way and
2: the beautiful aroma of trash,
3: mm, of hot trash garbage. everywhere. yeah oh amazing i will say it's even it's even too hot here in minnesota it was 100 degrees yesterday which oh I, yeah no it's not good the whole point of of going to the to the great North was avoiding that in the summer. And I'm a little frustrated that it's, it's, I will say us.
2: I was at the beach and it was 80 degrees. It was delightful. Wow. Everyone should go to the Jersey shore.
3: Yeah. No one should ever go to the Jersey shore, but if I you're going to so go to the up. Jersey shore, <laughs> I hope it's 80 degrees and delightful. It, so I was really
2: way. bummed that I did not get to see the uh, banner flown over the shore by the John Fetterman for Senate campaign That was amazing. saying, hi, Dr. Oz, It was there like the day before I got there, but alas, I personally did not see it, even though I was keeping an eye out. Like every time one of those planes would go overhead, I would look up, but no, just ads for, you know, sparkling water and such.
3: I I was going to say that that is really good shit posting, but maybe that's really good shit plane writing.
2: It's a new genre, you know?
3: I'm glad that we
1: got our adult content rating in even before we started the show, (laughs) just on the B-roll. That's good. What is the way you can say shit posting without saying the word shit? I don't know if there is a good way to yeah, say you it. You can't say
3: like doo-doo posting. That doesn't do do posting. Have the... Poopy posting.
4: Poopy posting. That's that's def- it should, def- it should
3: def- be now. <laughs> yeah, it's, def- it's definitely what Scott and my children do. It's it's
1: poopy posting. <laughs> you can't say trash talking because it doesn't capture it fully. Because like shit posting is its own beast. It's like a memorialized trash talking. How about how about poop trolling? No. Poop, no, that no. I don't know what that is but it's not this <laughs> hello everyone welcome to rational security 2.0 aka rational security full throttle i am one of your co-hosts scott r anderson and i am here with my two other wonderful co-hosts alan rosenstein hello and quinta jurassic hello and we are enjoying what is hopefully the last of a long run of very early mor- morning recording sessions on account of our various travel schedules. Uh, so thank you for being with us through the summer season uh, with the three of our voices where we get to stretch out a little bit and talk a little more with each other uh, because it's hard to rope in a guest this early in the morning, especially in the summer vacation season.
2: We're not cool enough, guys. If we were cooler, people would be queuing up
1: i know people go on msnbc at like six in the morning whatever crazy people that's fine for the We're record i will never do that guys i bet Joe rogan doesn't have this problem <laughs> i once was invited on early morning news show i won't say which one and i set my alarm for like 5 30 so i could do it and they canceled at 12 30 the night before no! I got up and uh. put, my, put my little suit on and started getting ready and then i looked at my phone i was like oh god damn it. i went back to bed for four more hours <laughs> So, you in know, suit. in my suit, yeah, I didn't, I did not waste a moment at that point because I wasn't going to use it otherwise. So might as well get some mileage out of this thing. But yeah, for oh, shame, for shame. Well, uh, we are happy to have you at this early morning hour or whatever hour you may be listening to this at. for what we are calling the this edition is too damn early edition <laughs> in honor of our early morning recording time and looking forward to some later in the day recordings to come for the rest of the summer. But we have three, uh, at least three stories, but three we've decided to focus in on for this week in the world of national security that we want to talk over with you. Topic one, stuck in the Middle East with you. As President Biden ends his trip to the Middle East, having reengaged the Gulf countries and recommitted to preventing Iran from securing a nuclear weapon, including by force if necessary, Russian President Vladimir Putin is kicking off his own visit to deepen ties with Tehran and negotiate with Turkey. What does this mean for regional security, the lagging Iran nuclear talks, and the U.S. pivot to Asia? Topic two, qualified incredulity. The Justice Department has finally weighed in on former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' arguments that executive privilege prevents the January 6th committee from compelling his testimony. And while it didn't back his position, it was perhaps more friendly than one might expect. What should we make of its approach? And topic three, Georgia on my ass. Prosecutors from the Peach State are proving a lot less cautious about investigating misconduct around the 2020 elections than the Justice Department appears to be, to the point that they may soon begin indicting associates of President Trump. What explains this different approach and where might it lead? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started.
3: So I'm going to keep this brief because I want to hand it right back over to you as our Iran nuclear stuff expert. (laughs) So I will say, uh, just as introduction, that last week, as part of his Middle East tour, uh, President Joe Biden visited Israel, where he held a press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid. And in that press conference, he said some notable things, including that the U.S. is, quote, prepared to use all elements of its national power to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, uh, clearly indicating that there were at least some scenarios in which the United States would consider the use of force. Uh, Now, the president uh, reportedly wants to resuscitate the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, uh, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as the insiders say, Um, the 2015 deal that the Trump administration abandoned in 2018. But there's little evidence that a renewed deal is on the table. So, Scott, let's start with a, a brief history of the Iran nuclear deal, since it's something that we probably haven't, uh, or at least most of us probably haven't uh, thought about in some time. What was it? Why did the Trump administration withdraw from it? And what is the current state of Iran's attempts at developing nuclear weapons? So let's just get some background on the table before we talk about this uh, latest development.
1: Sure. The JCPOA uh, was an agreement that, of course, the Obama administration entered into with Iran and actually a number of other states as well. The European Union, the United Nations were involved in various regards that basically worked out an exchange where Iran would end its nuclear weapons program or at least pause it substantially, essentially end it for an extended period in exchange for sanctions relief, not comprehensive sanctions relief. Iran was still sanctioned and going to be sanctioned for a variety of its uh, more problematic activities around the region and around the world, but would have its nuclear related sanctions that have been under under the United Nations alleviated substantially. It was a non-binding arrangement, meaning it's not a considered an internationally binding treaty, but it had the imprimatur of the UN Security Council, which enacted resolutions that basically aligned UN sanctions obligations with the terms of the agreement and gave the UN Security Council kind of a role in overseeing it to some extent. The Trump administration was critical of this agreement. Actually, a lot of people, it's worth noting, were very critical of it from the outset, including several senior Democrats in Congress uh, as essentially being a little too easy on Iran and not dealing with Iran's other bad activities. Nonetheless, it was seen as a, a big win by the Obama administration, who saw it as necessary to really stop the threat of a nuclear Iran, which they saw as being potentially majorly destabilizing for the region. The Trump administration came in having sided with the critics over the course of the campaign of the agreement, and within really the first two years or so of Trump's time in office, was increasingly critical of the agreement, kind of let it linger for a while. There was an obligation installed by statute to kind of issue renewal, not not actually technically renewals, but essentially to renew commitment to the agreement every few months. Um, that was installed as part of a compromise with Congress to avoid more binding opposition to some of the terms of this arrangement. And ultimately, President Trump declined to issue that renewal that essentially led to a number of US sanctions to snap back against Iran and then also initiated a maximum pressure campaign against Iran when Iran responded by saying look you're violating this agreement and then began to step up perhaps some of its more nuclear ac- related activities the Trump administration then escalated its own way with what is the maximum pressure campaign that essentially leveled pretty unprecedented economic sanctions against Iran at least unprecedented until the Russia case around the t- invasion of Ukraine that has been the status quo. The Biden administration has signaled it's willing to reenter the terms of the agreement to some extent, although they have suggested that there need to be some modifications made, both to address the passage of time and Iran's other bad activities in the region to some extent, although it's not clear exactly how. Meanwhile, Iran has had a major election that has brought in an even more sort of hardline nationalist faction into control of the government that has slowed the discussions around the agreement. And at this point, are essentially, the agreement has stalled, as far as we can tell from the outside. European partners who are involved in the negotiations keep saying every few months, there's only weeks left to actually resolve this agreement no doubt, as a way to try and pressure Iran to actually sign on to make some changes. It hasn't seemed to work so far. Right now, it sounds like the Biden administration is waiting for Iran to respond to its latest set of talks. The last thing Iran said was essentially trying to come in with a bunch of new conditions and bring in a bunch of issues that the Biden administration seems to have shot down, really incorporating this disagreement. We don't know, to my knowledge, exactly what those were, but that's the way they have framed it. Um, the Biden administration officials working on this. And so it's kind of at a stopping point. And so this statement by President Biden, I think, can be seen as a backstop against that and also kind of both a signal to Iran about where things will go potentially if some sort of agreement is not reached, which is that the United States is willing to you know, support and do what it is necessary to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, something that at this point it's believed it's just a couple of weeks or short months away from doing if it chooses to go in that direction. Right now, it's just enriching the uranium but not actually pursuing weapons development as far as we can tell. And so, you know, this is a return to a period in 2014 that I, you know, many people lived through, that I lived through at the time uh, in the region actually, 2013-2014 where people seriously took took seriously the possibility that there might be military strikes against Iran specifically to disable uh the nuclear program, primarily by Israel it was always assumed but presumably with some sort of United States wink and nod and sign off if not more compelling support. Um, and that's kind of what Biden is signaling there might be a return to here to some extent. Um, and this is something that his, the Gulf allies and others in the region who are very concerned about Iran and want to see stronger U.S. action against Iran have supported saying, we need your support to really make clear to Iran, there's not no military option here. Uh, and they view being strong on Iran as a better approach than negotiating. And it's possible if the JCPOA negotiations fall apart, that's going to be the only real option left to the Biden administration.
2: So I have many questions here. Um, I mean, first first among them is what incentive Iran has to negotiate seriously here, given that they entered into a situation where, you know, the deal was made, it seemed like everything was set, and then the Trump administration came in and kind of threw everything out the window. Obviously, there's a very real possibility that, you know, a future republican administration could show up in 2025 and throw anything that is negotiated here out the window again you know given that that is that uncertainty is kind of on the table do you see a prospect of iran sort of taking this seriously or has the us kind of damaged its own credibility in the space
1: I think the U.S. has absolutely damaged its credibility. uh, And and that is a big part of the formula. One of the demands that Iran has raised at various points is to say, well, we want some sort of binding commitment that will hold any future presidential administration to the terms of our agreement. That's not actually something easy to do in the United States in general.
2: The mechanics of that seem somewhat complicated.
1: Exactly. I mean, in theory, look, I mean, sanctions are something that's controlled by Congress, not the president, actually. like If Congress were super supportive, Congress could enact a law saying, oh, no, we're going to rescind sanctions until certain conditions, so long as certain conditions are met. And future presidents probably couldn't do much about that, because um, it's very much core to the Foreign Commerce Clause power that Congress exercises, not the president. But instead, you have the opposite situation here. Congress is, if anything, kind of a the bad cop in these negotiations, um, trying to rein in the Biden administration, the Obama administration before it, who are more interested in engaging, putting a lot of obstacles and checks in the way. And so if anything, it's going to be, it seems like it's still going to be pretty easy for a subsequent president to roll this back, both mechanically and politically. Um, It's just the kind of classic problematic dynamics around Iran, which is that there's a very strong domestic political constituency in the United States that buys into the regional view and worldview that, you know, a lot of allies in the Middle East, the Gulf states in particular, and Israel have, which is that Iran's a hostile actor and they need to be treated like a hostile actor, not through negotiations, but by, you know, essentially strong threats of potential use of military force and sanctions. The problem is that none of those things have actually stopped Iran successfully from pursuing its nuclear weapons. So it's not clear that that's a successful strategy either. It's a really difficult scenario. Um, This is why the Obama administration, you know, leaned into the JCPOA as a way potentially out of that. And they don't seem to really have gotten there yet or found another approach. I actually have a question for you all as folks who track probably the domestic political side of this maybe more than the, the foreign relations uh, side, at least the hard national security regional relations side of it, is that, you know, I, I, one question I've had to, in my mind is, why is it the United States and the Biden administration in particular keeps holding out this hope of uh, re-entering the JCPOA, given that We've had European allies, again, repeatedly say, hey, look, this has to happen in the next few weeks or else it's kind of meaningless because the timeline left to really... Have an agreement have much effect like the incentives for for cooperating get lower and lower and lower for all parties essentially as more time passes and a potential new presidential administration is around the corner but the biden administration has actually been you know more reticent than european allies to say oh this has to happen right now um they've always left the door open to a process even though they haven't found any of the terms yet something that they're willing to accept And they've really tried to shift the focus on Iran as saying Iran needs its own house in order as to what it's about, willing to accept in terms of terms, because what it's coming forward with is just straight up unrealistic. Does that strike you as a necessary domestic political move? To me, that's where it seems to fit easiest. But like, where is the political space to which the Biden administration could abandon the JCPOA without a clear avenue, given the political role it's played for the last few years as a little bit of of a hot potato between
3: the two parties? Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm skeptical that there's much space for this issue in domestic politics either way right now. I, j- I just don't think the American public, to the extent it ever cared about this issue, I think it really doesn't care now. I mean, between inflation and Trump and, I don't know, critical race theory and whatever else is taking up all the oxygen.
2: That's the key, is that we, we need to figure out a way to <laughs> yeah, link <exactly>. the JCPOA <laughs> To the destruction and purge of the scourge of critical race theory, and that—that that is the way to get the American people oh, on board God. here. It can well, be if you done. Can get some
1: children's books into well, elementary schools about Rufo. this. Then- you
3: joke, you joke, but um, no, I I, mean, I I think that's exactly right, right? There's just there's just there's no space in, in this, and that would that would be okay if this was something within the president's power to do unilaterally, and also in a way that tied the hands of his successor. But, you know, as we've seen from Obama to Trump and then Trump to Biden and then Biden to, I don't know, DeSantis, maybe, uh, there's just no way to credibly signal to the Iranians, right? And I'm not like, I don't feel too bad for the Iranians, but like here, I do feel a little bad for them. Like, it's just, it was very hard to negotiate with the United States in this regard, because there's just no way to credibly commit to anything. Um, and and Scott, as you pointed out, right? I mean, the only people that can really change sanctions are your Congress, and Congress can't do anything, let alone something as legitimately controversial as as this. So, so yeah, I, I am skeptical that this is that there's a re- realistic chance for renewing this. And and I wonder if that is the reason for this suddenly, or what seems to be a, or it's a publicly messaged at least as a somewhat more aggressive posture? I mean, I I am curious. You know, this is this is all turning into we ask each other questions, which is nice. I mean, I'm curious, Scott. Do you do you think that the words that Biden said specifically regarding All elements of U.S. national power, which clearly was meant to signal that military option is on the table in some hypothetical sense. Does that mean anything? Is that a change? I mean, you know, if if the table is big enough, then everything is on the table. It's not a very meaningful statement. Um, Should we read much into this or is this just Biden saying, well, obviously, we're not going to take military options off the table because then then we lose, you know, even we have even less leverage than we uh, did before.
1: It's a good question. You know, my sense is that this doesn't actually change the the scope of what the United States is willing to do, but it's clearly a sign by Biden to say we want to put rhetorical pressure on the Iranians to try and push them to come to some sort of conclusion that can move the agreement forward to some extent. Here, among other regional interests, for making statements like that, which aren't really actually as directly related to Iran, much more about satiating Israeli and, and Gulf partners. You know, the the trouble with it. Um, with that sort of approach, to a certain extent, is is you know Iran it gives Iran space to start escalating using its own escalatory rhetoric, which it has domestic political reasons to do potentially as well. And look, the classic thermometer for all of this is, is we have one. We have a really good regional thermometer that tells us what relations are like between Iran and the United States, and particularly how much Iran wants to push back against the United States, and that is security conditions in Iraq. When conditions between the two countries get bad, all of a sudden the Iraqi embassy, my former home, uh, a place I have some attachment to, uh, starts getting rocket attacked a lot. Uh, and you start seeing Iran backed militias engaging in a range of nefarious activities in different parts of Iraq. That itself is contrary to U.S. policy interests, but it's particularly problematic because it threatens U.S. personnel throughout the country who still are there despite the end of the combat mission in Iraq at the end of last year. So, you know, it is a, it's a little bit of a dicey situation. And having lived through, frankly, some of the more tense moments, uh, in Iraq, uh, in terms of uh, U.S.-Iran relations, like it's, although not not compared to what's happened the last few years, but but at the time was very tense, seemed very tense. It's really hard for diplomats and you know military attaches and other folks who are there to do their jobs. And that hurts U.S.-Iraqi relations. It hurts U.S. regional interests. And it's problematic in a lot of regards. So it's it's a real pressure point, although it's one that maybe doesn't register the same degree back in D.C., except for that kind of threat to U.S. personnel, angle. But um, yeah, we'll have to see where it goes. I suspect we're going to see some more tension in Iraq, unless we see some progress in one d- domain
3: or another in these talks or in the broader bilateral relationship. So before we leave this topic, I do want to go back to one thing that you Scott mentioned up at the top, and that's the role of Russia and Putin in in all of this. So what, what is what is going on there? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, we saw Vladimir Putin schedule his second only his second trip outside of Russia since the beginning of the Ukraine offensive. I think the first one outside of kind of the near region that that Russia is involved in. I can't remember exactly where his first trip was, was I believe it was kind of to a regional partner going to Tehran to negotiate both with the Iranian government that's on the verge of providing the uh, Russian regime with, among other things, drones uh, that Iran has kind of cultivated a market for. Although there's some good questions about how meaningful this is and how like what sort of scale of drone production Iran can actually provide to Russia for use in Ukraine, but it's at least symbolically significant measure. And to have negotiations with Turkish President Erdogan uh, while in the region, um, where Erdogan has kind of positioned himself to try and serve as a mediator in the Ukraine conflict, particularly focused at the current moment on trying to get uh, Ukrainian grain exports restarted through the Black Sea, where Turkey plays a dominant role for geographic reasons, precisely because that is triggering not just economic problems for Ukraine, but a global food scarcity uh, issue that could well become a crisis if it hasn't already uh, in the near future for a lot of parts of the world ukraine's really one of these bread baskets of the world a lot of countries are relying on so you know putin's decision to do this right after biden's trip is not a coincidence i mean i think it's a sign that a lot of these interactions with JC around iran around the jcpoa with the Gulf partners, Gulf allies, it's less about regional dynamics. I don't think this regional engagement by Biden, a lot of it is, is is issues that have been around for a while, but now has this new valence because of the broader conflict with Russia over Ukraine, where essentially you see uh, Russia trying to reestablish its place as a regional uh, ally with regional influence, which it has a lot of because it's, of its involvement in the Syria conflict, because of its close alliance with Iran that's getting closer by all appearances. Uh, And the United States is saying, well, this is another place we can bring more pressure to bear on Russia by limiting its potential regional allies, cutting it off at the past and in efforts to engage the Gulf states, efforts to engage Turkey to some extent, and then limiting and perhaps even constraining Iran. So you could easily see, frankly, ramped up sanctions against Iran being cast as part of the broader effort to isolate Russia, because if Iran is going to be one of the few countries willing to still be a market for Russia and a partner for Russia then the sanctions become even easier to, to slap on it without, while still being able to distinguish them from the kind of uh, animosity that seemed to motivate the Trump era maximum pressure campaign against Iran. You're tying it to broader strategic values that have more international support and might get a little more multilateral engagement. Um, so it's a really tricky balancing act. And it just shows the way these kind of global dynamics really affect you know regional issues in the, in, in the Middle East to this very day, in my view. Um, and it's a dynamic that makes it hard to to kind of turn away from the classic pivot to Asia that the Obama administration talked about, every administration has talked about, they all have done to some extent, but, you know, doesn't mean disengaging from the Middle East, as Biden was pretty clear about in his remarks. And in fact, it's hard to disengage because those broader global conflicts really have big ramifications for the Middle East and vice versa.
2: Yeah. To to paraphrase the old saw about Brazil, uh, the pivot to Asia is the foreign policy of the future and always will be. (laughs)
3: exactly i just want to know how big the table is going to be when putin sits down with his iranian counterparts because i can't because we we, we, you know putin was into really big tables for a while
2: then the tables got small then he was into teeny tiny tables tables with lukashenko very little tiny table
3: like weirdly tiny table so i'm just wondering if maybe the third time's a charm and they can we can really nail a table size in tehran
1: In my experience of Middle Eastern diplomacy, I will say it is rarely about the size of the tables, much more about the size of the chairs. They tend to be this inclination to want to put people in giant, ornate chairs that you can sit in. Even when I would go with my measly bilateral meetings, they would occasionally put us in these weirdly ornate chairs that you sink into. And feel kind of like throny. It's very strange, and there's often no table at all. Just these two ornate chairs of people kind of angled at each other for photo ops. That just it. makes me
2: think of the, the the picture of Marco Rubio in the giant rocking chair. That, that's <laughs> yes, not very exactly. imposing at all.
1: <laughs> I think it's exactly right.
2: I feel like my transitions from foreign policy to Trump stuff are always something along the lines of like from bad things over there to bad things here. Which is not wrong, but also deeply uncreative. On the other hand, you know, why mess with something that works? So <laughs> now listeners, we're we're going
1: to start the letter I Iran and immunity.
2: I don't know if that's any better, Scott.
3: No, that's better. That's no no no, that's better because it's worse. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> Things that start with the letter I. Let's go with that. Uh, So there has been some excitement uh, to do with one Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff. So listeners may recall Meadows faced a contempt ruling from Congress for his failure to comply with subpoenas from the January 6th committee. The Justice Department then determined that it was not going to prosecute him for contempt of Congress. Uh, Unlike other Trump advisors, Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, before, in fact, this whole question of contempt got moving, Meadows filed a civil suit against uh, Nancy Pelosi and the January 6th committee, attempting to sort of cut the committee subpoenas off at the pass have a court weigh in and say that he didn't have to comply. So even though the contempt question is now kaput, this civil lawsuit is still going. And there was an extremely interesting filing from the Justice Department, a statement of interest, essentially weighing in, in I think a a great more detail than we'd previously had, of the Office of Legal Counsel's view on this question of testimonial immunity for advisors to former presidents. And the fascinating, I think, thing uh, about this is that it suggests that there is not an absolute immunity for advisors to former presidents. So they they can essentially say, I'm not going to testify in front of Congress, no ifs, ands, or buts, but rather uh, qualified immunity, a term that listeners may be familiar with in in a different context, but here it doesn't have to do with COPS, where essentially there is some level of immunity, but it can be overcome if the committee meets particular factors, which the Justice Department argues it has here. So I think there there are a lot of interesting and very nerdy questions to, to dig into here. Frankly, among them is uh, what do we make of the Justice Department taking this position? What does it say in context of the fact that the department refused to prosecute Meadows for contempt of Congress? There's a lot to unpick. Alan, let me turn it over to you.
3: Yeah, this is super interesting. Um, and so I'll, I'll say a, a procedural thing and then I'll say some substantive stuff. So procedurally, I think this is great. I think we need way more... DOJ OLC filings in ongoing litigation. It's
2: oh yes, just tell us what they think. This is great.
3: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you know, it is so much better to just know what they think than have to find out seven years later, or twelve years later, when you know the Knight Institute has like sued them and finally gotten you know a bunch of FOIA disclosures. Um, so I, I think part of it's great. Uh, it is great from a transparency perspective. I think it's also good because you know, you get a more fact-based analysis. You know, o- OLC opinions are, are tricky, right? Because, you know, usually when OLC is asked something, it's asked something because there's some reason to ask it. But the opinions themselves are drafted in this almost you know, almost like law review-esque way, right? Um, and uh, let me tell you, no one wants to read law review articles, right? Kind of decontextualized. And so it's actually really nice to have this OLC analysis in the context of like a very specific individual so you can ground it. In something. So I just general matter. I don't know if this is like a new thing DOJ is doing. Um, but two thumbs up, more OLC filings, more more OLC filings. So on the substance of the position, you know, I, I think that it's reasonable, right? Um, you know, in particular because to say that you have quote unquote qualified immunity in this context is just to say kind of nothing at all. It's just to say There are some situations in which it's not appropriate for this person to testify, and there are some situations where it is appropriate to testify. And you know, hashtag Yola will figure out what it is on a case by case basis. Um, so in that sense, you know, it's I think it's a little hard to argue with. I do think there are two issues though that I'd want to see addressed more directly. Um, The first is, and I I read the filing, so you know, I, I think this is not in there though. Maybe I misread. In which case, I apologize. I think there's an interesting separate question about what you do in the kind of Trump context and specifically where you have a former president who may very well run again. So, you know, most presidents in American history are two term presidents, obviously not all. Right. Um, But most are two term presidents, at least recently. And the one term presidents just don't run again. Right. Like George H.W. Bush was not going to run again in the 90s. Gerald Ford was not going to run again. Carter was not going to run again. And so. You can treat a one term president as a two term president that's never going to run again, and so it's all historical in in the trump context it's actually kind of interesting um you know there's an argument to say that where the where the situation was that the advisor was to a one term president that may run again that argues for a little bit more i don't know immunity is quite the right word here a little bit of a higher standard i think um for demanding that that person appear before Congress you know not absolute but i think there's there's something there right um, and the other thing that i would i would want to see more of and and here the the filing did address this maybe i just disagree with it it seems actually a lot cleaner analytically and easier legally speaking to actually not address this very complicated issue of what this quote unquote qualified immunity is whereas here the current president has waived executive privilege right and actually there's a part part in the filing where they say We don't have to address the question of what to do where the current president has waived the past president's executive privilege, because here, um, you know, we think that even under this qualified immunity standard, Meadows should be forced to testify. Okay, but it actually seems to me a lot easier to do the other way and say we don't have to address this interesting kind of difficult question about qualified immunity and come up with all this new legal stuff where it's pretty obvious that the current president who is ultimately the most important holder of executive privilege and is fundamentally responsible for the health of the institution, has waived executive privilege. And Congress's uh, demand is non-frivolous. So I'm a little puzzled why DOJ went this way. I mean, I'm not puzzled. The reason they did it is because it's a way of expanding executive power while still forcing Mark Meadows to testify, which is like classic OLC stuff. But that, that's where uh, I, I pricked up a, a little bit.
1: So I think I agree with all of that, although I think it's kind of actually a little more of a problematic opinion, this particular opinion, and it, the way it handles, I get a little actually a little bit more why it handles the Biden waiver the way it does. The one thing I think is worth bearing in mind here is that this opinion basically still continues to embrace the argument that was put forward most prominently by the Trump administration recently, although other administrations have made versions of the argument, mostly about current advisors, though. Trump administration made it about former advisors saying there should be absolute immunity when it's a current president, even if it's a former advisor. This is the McGann position that OLC rolled out with that caught a lot of folks by surprise, I think, with the absoluteness of this determination, because it was the basis on which there was a determination that no, none of these former officials should give any sort of participation or engagement with uh, the January Sixth Committee in regards to its engagement, and this opinion actually kind of upholds that, I and mean, it does kind of it kind of it says this has been our longstanding position through a variety of administrations, notably Republican administrations, primarily entirely, I believe, uh, that it cites, and I I don't know if there were issues where it rose, I think maybe one or two issues, but again, I think primarily about current officials um, during Democratic administrations. So you know, OLC frankly often has like kind of certain bundles of opinions that. One party, the other leans into more heavily than others. And this. I my understanding has always been this is an issue that fits in that category where there's a bit of a partisan split. But here we see the Biden administration basically saying, no, we actually buy this, at least for current officials and former officials of the current president. Um, and then they have this phenomenal footnote, footnote four is why you should always read the footnotes, where they basically say, well, they say in the text, and then they link to the footnote saying, We acknowledge that some judges have disagreed with this view. And then they give this amazing hit list of every time this argument has lost in court, which by the way is every time it has appeared in court, <laughs> and they have not chosen to take the opportunity to reassess this. It's lost before district courts and DC circuit in the District of Columbia circuit. Um, it's never gotten Supreme Court, which is I'm sure why they say they maintain this position because it's never been proven authoritatively wrong. It will never get to the Supreme Court because it can. the executive branch can always just compromise and moot the issue. Uh, so it, it's a little absurd from my view that they're still sticking to this argument that they seem to kind of be acknowledging that has not been a winner for them in courts. But nonetheless, OLC is is sticking with it and now making a bipartisan kind of position.
2: Yeah, I just this that line in that footnote, huge OLC energy there. Yes, every judge has rejected this, but you know what? We don't care. I, I will also note that one of the judges they cite as rejecting this is one uh, then district court judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. So, as you say, Scott, this this will never get to the Supreme Court, but we we might have a sense of how at least one justice will rule if it ever does. But again, exactly, we'll see. Doesn't care, just gonna do whatever.
1: Just gonna stick with the argument, which is, which is again, I think a little surprising. But instead, they do what we've seen the Biden OLC do in other contexts as well, particularly when revisiting some of these, in my view, problematic older Trump administration OLC opinions, where they rely on really kind of narrow distinctions of fact to reach pretty substantially different legal conclusions. So now it's really the fact that it's a former president, even for former officials, and they're saying, well, in this case, yeah, no, absolute immunity is kind of out the window here. No, no, no. Here we're going to drop down to qualified immunity, which is a Frankly, much more justifiable opinion in my view for the whole range of immunities being applied in this area because it essentially says it's fact specific. You know, when you're qualified immunity, you've got to weigh a number of factors, and they point to the Mazars decision. They point to a number of other decisions that courts have used where they essentially lay out a multi-factor test and say we've got to weigh all these different equities and reach a conclusion. And that's that's just how courts actually approach these things. Um, and it might be frankly like. A little more honest if OLC were like, yeah, this is all qualified immunity. Now, maybe the interests of the executive branch weigh much more heavily and maybe approach absolute immunity in a lot of cases, but trying to draw this very sharp line just shows that this OLC like isn't ready to walk back from these old opinions or really revisit them yet, even though, again, they were pretty striking when they were issued, I think, for a lot of folks. Not totally unsurprising, but um, certainly seemed to have big implications for the ability of Congress to check the executive at the time. And I think a lot of folks were hoping the Biden OLC and the Biden Justice Department might issue a corrective a little bit, certainly in a case like this, where those arguments have kept losing in the courts. But they don't seem to be there yet, um, which is kind of disappointing.
3: Yeah, I, I just I just want to Emphasize a point that you made, Scott, which is that this will not get to the courts, which is a big problem because, because, to the extent it doesn't get to the courts, then OLC's position on it is de facto the law of the land. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a separation of powers purist. I, I really think that Congress should mostly be able to harass the executive branch as much as it wants to. You know, And I say that having no illusions about this Congress and recognizing 100% that the Republicans will win in November. Uh, or probably will win the House in November, and it's just going to be absolutely awful. I I just don't see how in a a system of separation of powers where the presidency is so powerful and the only thing Congress can do, honestly, or one of the few things Congress can do to check the presidency is to harass him, frankly, how you can deny that power to, to Congress, right? And the question of, oh, won't it be abused? It's like, of course it'll be abused, and then it'll have to be worked out in politics, which is fundamentally how all this has to be worked out. Um, and it is very frustrating that OLC, and, and not OLC here, really the executive branch, um, can manipulate, you know, standing and mootness and all of that um, to avoid uh, this ever getting to a court just being able to say, hey, all these OLC opinions are just wrong, is deeply, deeply frustrating.
2: Yeah, I'd I'd agree. I think it's worth underlining how much the shadow of the midterms is hanging over this. One, So I did a, a bunch of work with Andrew Kent, the great Andrew Kent, as Ben would say, on post-Trump reforms and why they've stalled in both the Justice Department and Congress. And one thing that we kept running into again and again was just this concern that if control of the House shifts... Anything, any more ammunition that's given to Congress will be used by Republicans to investigate, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop or whatever wish list you want to come up with, and I do think that that is weighing extraordinarily heavily here now. If you want to take a glass half full approach, you could say in the unlikely event that Democrats do hold on to the House, perhaps that might make it, you know, more feasible to actually think seriously about rolling back some of this overreach. I frankly doubt that will happen, but hey, dream big. The The second point I want to note is, uh, you know, since I have been, I think, pretty loud and annoying in criticizing OLC for its, its role here, uh, it's a rapacious expansion of executive power at the cost of all else, including American democracy. Not that I'm mad. It is worth noting that, I mean, this... This filing does take a stance that essentially says, if you really get down to it, the January 6th investigation is sufficiently important and the committee has sufficiently shown its need for this material, that it should get that material. Um, and this is a posture that the Justice Department has taken in other ways when it comes to, for example, Biden's, uh, the statements of Biden's decisions not to invoke executive privilege. Sorry, that came from the White House Counsel, but from the administration more broadly, um, not to invoke executive privilege over certain materials relating to the January 6th investigation. that That's done through different routes. You know, the reasoning takes different forms. But the sort of bottom line is, yes, we think that this congressional investigation is extraordinarily important. And with some disputes around the edges, we generally want to make it possible for them to get this information. Now, the disputes around the edges are important. I'm still mad that they're not prosecuting Mark Meadows. But it is worth noting here that, you know, the Justice Department, OLC, is finding some routes to make things a little easier for the committee, and and I do think that that's worth you know at least uh, two cheers, if not three.
1: Yeah, I hardly agree with that. You know, I'm probably a little more sympathetic to the executive. I haven't shaken. Alan appears to have thoroughly shaken off his his roots uh, in the executive being an executive branch lawyer. I have not quite gotten there. At least in in part, I spent I spent a different times in my career on the other side of various types of disclosure issues and fights like this, and, and they are tricky. You know, I do think there's an argument the executive branch needs to have in. Probably was constitutionally intended, or at least early on conceived, to have some degree of being able to have internal conversations among senior advisors and the president. You know, which is which is the core of executive privilege. I think executive privilege has creeped in a lot of different directions since then, um, but fundamentally, you know, agree there's probably some sort of core of an area that should be largely impenetrable to most folks in the same way we think of like attorney client privilege and lots of privileges as being a necessary thing for people to be able to carve out legal positions and then, you know, advance different sorts of decision-making inside organizations. In the same way, I would kind of be inclined to say that that exists for the executive branch. And then there's a whole gray spectrum to say, yeah, I mean, if Congress has a good reason to get this information, it's reasonable to ask them for it, but Congress might not have a good reason. So what do you do then? And it just strikes me that the correct answer is to put those questions to the courts and let the two sides make their arguments on the equities and let them appeal it up to all the different levels that you have of the judicial system. And they reach a sort of conclusion there. There's a problem that that takes a really long time, although, as I've I've mentioned before on this podcast and other places, like I think actually the best way to fix this is for Congress to install expedited procedures, which it could, um, to improve the enforcement of its subpoenas or other measures, to limit the time that that takes under the current litigation schedule. But I find turning to the courts for weighing those factors to be much preferable than a situation where either one or the other kind of automatically succeeds, because that just seems ripe for abuse on both ends of the spectrum, or where you leave it to the two to fight it out, which was the initial kind of panel view in McGahn that ended up being reversed by the en banc court um because when they fight it out that's just begging for this really savage outcome where uh you know one branch has to refuse to fund you know Congress has to refuse to fund the executive branch the executive branch refuses to you know use executive branch law enforcement officials to provide security on Capitol Hill like these were actually some of the proposals people say oh these are the different ways these branches could fight back against each other and those are both so suboptimal to the public interest they're supposed to be pursuing i find that argument to be a really horrible vision of kind of anarchy, (laughs) a way of resolving conflict between the two political branches, when you have another branch there, that's job is to resolve those sorts of conflicts in lots of other contexts. So that's why I I like the qualified privilege approach. It makes a lot of sense to me. It's just silly to me that DOJ clearly is leaning so heavily on this here, but isn't willing to accept that approach kind of up and down the docket. The last point you raised, Alan, actually the point about that it doesn't seem to want to resolve this strictly on the lines that a former president is trumped by a current president, like that again to me is a, is a sign that it's leaning into the qualified immunity approach. It basically said, oh, that's just one factor. It weighs really heavily here, but it's not decisive. You've got to weigh a bunch of different factors because there could be context where a former president around certain information has a right, to assert that sort of privilege. And and former presidents actually do routinely assert privileges over the sort of information are allowed to do so in federal regulation that was debated in the context of the Thompson litigation. So they're willing to lean into this in a lot of other cases, but they're not yet willing to walk back these prior OLC opinions and embrace qualified privilege as the right approach here. And that's that's the part I find more frustrating than, more than anyone else. They clearly see that as the future of where this issue is going, but they're just not ready to go revisit these, these older views to, to kind of put the executive branch on that track from the get-go. Well, from one Mark Meadows scandal to another Mark Meadows-related scandal, let us turn our eyes to the south. To one of our our lovely states in the southern southeastern Atlantic of the United States, the state of Georgia that has found itself in a new political position in a lot of different ways over the last few years and is now because of that new political position, specifically the role it played as a major swing state in the 2020 elections, finding itself uh, and its local prosecutors as playing a central role in a national debate. Um, We have in Fulton County in Georgia, a district attorney investigating the actions that President Trump's supporters, and perhaps President Trump himself, took to try and persuade statewide officials to essentially ignore state election results in 2020 and move towards a solution much more favorable towards President Trump, whether finding additional votes, as President Trump notoriously urged statewide officials to do uh, in at least one phone call we have heard the audio recording of, or to take other steps that might facilitate a President Trump victory in Georgia, and through that Uh, perhaps the nation as well. We know this investigation has been going on for a while. There's been a special grand jury call to grand jury focused specifically on this investigation, it seems, although I don't think we 100% know that with certainty, but that's that's the widely reported uh, account of what the grand jury is doing. And we now have had a number of officials in Trump universe actually be brought before or subpoenaed to be brought before the grand jury. There are rumors that President Trump himself may be subpoenaed to try and present to the grand jury and give testimony. And a number of folks in the state who were supporters of President Trump have gotten notices that they may well be indicted as a result of this investigation. These are the sorts of steps that a lot of people have been calling for at the national level from the Justice Department. The Justice Department has not really moved in that direction at all, although we know they are actively investigating a lot of these actions around the 2020 election. But Fulton County DA is beating them to it with this investigation focused specifically on events in Georgia. Quinta, let me start with you on this one. How significant is this investigation and what could it really mean for the broader national investigation, how does it interface with any sort of federal prosecution or the January 6th committee's separate accountability efforts, which are not criminal in nature, but nonetheless certainly bear on these events?
2: So I want to start off by encouraging everyone uh, to listen to an excellent episode of the Lawfare Podcast recorded by our managing editor, Tyler McBrien, with um, Tamar Hollerman, who's a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and has been reporting the heck out of this grand jury investigation. Um, It was a great discussion, and I personally learned a lot. So a lot of what I'm saying here is just channeling Tyler. Thank you, Tyler. Um, I think that the – I mean, look, when this investigation started, I was kind of skeptical that it might go anywhere, maybe just from – years of being jaded over uh trump investigations there there's a that uh, famous tweet where of saying you know ah it's going to be hard for old donnie trump to wiggle out of this jam and trump wiggles out of jam ah nevertheless um that that said you know at at risk of positioning myself as the speaker in that tweet it does seem like this investigation is really heating up and the da Fani willis is sort of going on all cylinders. Um, as you say, they've delivered target letters to uh, a number of Republican officials, politicians, indicating that they may be indicted. There have been uh, technically not subpoenas, but it certificates, something. It's essentially, it's the process by which the special grand jury in the state of Georgia can uh, demand testimony from folks outside the state of Georgia. So de facto subpoenas to Senator Lindsey Graham, recently uh, Republican Representative Jody Heiss. Uh, Graham has uh, sought to block that subpoena or certificate. I think that Heiss has said that he's planning to do the same. It seems to be heating up. I mean, there was a while where things were kind of quiet. Now, the question is, okay, so how, how does this interface with the January 6th investigation and with the Justice Department investigation more broadly i'm not entirely sure when it comes to the january 6 investigation just because you know as i've i'll say until i'm blue in the face you know that the that investigation is really it's not focused on criminal accountability even though they, they are talking about trump's criminal accountability it's focused on kind of telling the story to the public putting out the facts and obviously that the committee has talked a lot about the issues that are um, in scope with the, the Georgia or seem to be in scope with the Georgia special grand jury in terms of efforts to uh tinker with the vote in Georgia, block the certification of the electoral vote, et cetera. When it comes to the Justice Department, I think this is kind of a, an interesting question. Um, obviously there are plenty of federalism issues that we can go into in enormous depth, and I'm sure we will. I kind of wonder if there's an extent to which, you know, an indictment of Trump from the Georgia would kind of let the Justice Department off the hook a little bit. I mean, if if you're Merrick Garland or Lisa Monaco, frankly, I, I would be breathing a sigh of relief of, you know, thank God somebody else is handling this. and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I do wonder whether, uh, you know, the principles of federal prosecution, some of the considerations that prosecutors are are meant to take into account when considering whether to bring a case uh, include uh, whether prosecution is in the national interest and whether there are other means of holding someone accountable. And so, again, I, I don't know this for certain, but I do wonder whether an indictment of Trump in Georgia might lead the Justice Department to say this is the other means. He has been indicted in Georgia there's sort of less political heat on the Justice Department. Now, should that be the case? I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's a, a beautiful thing about federalism that a special grand jury in Georgia can investigate the former president um, or investigate people around the former president and perhaps the former president himself. On the other hand, isn't it kind of the Justice Department's job to... Take this on, you know. They are the federal government. They are the federal law enforcement agency. It, in a way, it seems like kind of letting them off the hook in a in a way that I find distasteful. On the other hand, of course, all of this is extremely hypothetical because nothing has happened yet.
3: How, how many? How many hands was was that? The three hands. I feel like you- an octopus oh, no, number oh, no. of oh, no. hands. That's actually really good. On the other octopus hand, yeah. So I, I, I have a bunch of I have a bunch of thoughts here, but let me let me kind of riff off. The last thing you said Quinta about this federalism point because this is to me maybe this is such an interesting issue and I, I just how I think about this depends entirely on which side of the bed I wake up on in the morning I will say my instinct is to just be very uncomfortable with and skeptical of investigations of you know the president by anyone other than the federal government right now obviously like if the president is stops being the president and then goes to Mar-a-Lago and, you know, shoots someone. Yes, that is obviously a job for, for the Florida, right, for the state. Uh, for the state. But, but here, I mean, you're clearly investigating the president for what is fundamentally a matter of national concern. Now, it, it is totally true, just to be clear. I'm not making a legal point here necessarily, right? There's 100% the case that assuming the facts are as we think the facts are, there's a very colorable case that a bunch of Georgia laws were, were violated. But I think just structurally, the precedent of a DA being able to investigate, right, a president—you know, whether a sitting president or a former president—raises, I think, a lot of concerns. Now, you know, and it has to be some mechanism for thinking through those concerns. Now, on the other hand, it's not as if having the federal government investigate this is also without its without its problems, because of course. DOJ. I mean, we just had this whole conversation about OLC, right? And how OLC inevitably in this awkward position, um, because it is OLC and or DOJ on the one hand, but also kind of in the president's lawyers, even if they ultimately say they're not the president's lawyers. So there's a concern that the federal government and DOJ will pull its punches. So like, there's no good answer here. And maybe that actually is the best argument for federalism, right? Which is that you have different levels of government, neither of which can do a perfect job here. So you have to let maybe both of them do it. But just again, right, and I am someone who I yield to no one in my distaste for Donald Trump, but everyone who's like cackling about the Georgia investigation, and I am one of these people should also just consider like, do you really want DAs across the country being able to bring investigations of the president, the former president, uh, and that person's uh, close uh, allies? That being said, I will say just as a general matter, I am super, super impressed with Connie Willis as a DA. You know, uh, again, I highly recommend people listen to the podcast um, uh, from earlier this week. But uh, what one thing that apparently Fonnie likes to say is, I, and I hope I'm getting this right, she doesn't like to go into cases skinny.
1: That is the most Georgia prosecutor, like Southern prosecutor way to describe a case. I love that when I heard the
3: podcast interview. It was great. Right. I mean, it's funny that we're, com- you know, we're comparing her... Favorably to Merrick Garland, but like she's very much in like the Merrick Garland and Bob Mueller kind of, you know, head down, ultra sober prosecutor. And then just comparing her to other prosecutors at the state level, you know, I'm thinking here, obviously, of Letitia James, um, the New York Attorney General. Um, It's just such a contrast of Willis, who really projects, and I think because it's true, that she is a prosecutor because she wants to be a prosecutor and her job is to prosecute. Right. Versus other prosecutors. And maybe this is a particular pathology of the New York attorney general, which I continue to rant about of um, uh, prosecuting like entirely for political, one's own political purposes. And it just it raises a lot of confidence. Now, again, I still maintain that we don't really want a system in which the main way we hold Donald Trump accountable is through the Fulton County D.A. No offense, no, no shade on Fulton County D.A. I'm sure they are exceptional lawyers, certainly better than I am. But if we're going to do it, I am delighted uh, that this is the D.A that seems to be handling this issue.
1: You know, Alan, I think it's really interesting because uh, somehow between the last issue and this one, you and I have flipped on our defensiveness of the executive branch because uh, I have almost no concerns for the, the Georgia investigating this particular action.
3: Like I, I agree with you fundamentally. <laughs> you are so incoherent, Scott. It just shows that like you and with like none of these yeah. views have any coherency. It's all just intuitions.
1: It makes a lot of sense if you've ever been in interagency conversations with the Justice Department, the State Department, actually. But that's okay; (laughs) we'll move past that. Um, You know, I have I have a lot less concerns about it in this particular case. I mean, I agree with you. Generally, we don't want you know state authorities interfering with or providing a window to interfere with the president's conduct of national affairs. That's one hundred percent right. But not everything the president does automatically becomes a like a matter of national concern. And particularly, frankly, like Counting electors and running elections is expressly constitutionally committed to state authorities, right? State legislature that's kind of a separate issue. There's a podcast coming out on the law for a podcast later this week about that one. You heard
3: it here first Scott Anderson's stand for the independent state legislature end of democracy doctrine.
1: Certainly, some complications there, but the one thing it does mean is that at a minimum, it certainly relates to state law, and this is an area where I would not mind. Seeing the Justice Department come in and have to make an argument saying, here's a reason why, you know, federal supremacy means these are federal issues. State law can't encroach here because I don't think they have an argument. Um, this is something that's so clearly committed to the states by the Constitution um that I think this is the exact sort of issue where you really have state authority being a really, really valuable added check. It's like a a benefit that doesn't come up a lot, but I actually think is pretty important about our federalist structure and another vehicle of accountability and i you know it'd be really interesting to think about what role this has played in the past and other contexts and w- how it might have been conceived of early on, because now we have a very broad scoped executive branch, very broad scope federal government, I should say, where lots of things are considered the federal scope. That certainly wasn't the case early on in the republic. And I would suspect that, frankly, state authorities played a much stronger role and may have been even envisioned to play an even stronger role early in the republic. I, I haven't looked into this. I think it'd be a great law review article if anybody's inclined to do so. The one thing I'll say here why it's really important, right, Is because these are politically driven charges, but, you know, you often then would expect, well, maybe if there are federal charges, even if Trump or some people close to Trump were convicted federally, a future Republican president would face a lot of pressure to issue a pardon. And that's I think that's probably true. But you can't pardon state crimes. And yeah, Georgia has a Republican governor right now, not a friendly Republican governor. But more importantly, Georgia is one of only three, if I recall correctly, states in the union where the governor doesn't have authority over pardons. It's actually given to like an independent committee. And I I don't know what the politics of that committee are. That'd be a great question for uh, an enterprising reporter to chase down and do some thinking about. That means like there is a real prospect of politically insulated accountability here in a very politically charged case, in part because of the coincidence of geography about where this all took place. That could be a really big deal. I think in terms of actual like criminal liability, Fulton is actually where it starts and where it may end. For a lot of the most senior people involved in this investigation, but I think it's very real for them, uh, and they should be preparing for to fight the on the legal state terrain as much as a federal terrain. And it's not clear to me that they are fully prepared for that as of yet.
2: Yeah, I think that the point about the pardon power is actually extraordinarily important, and and. One instance in which, once again, I will give two cheers for federalism. Um, Just insofar as we know that Trump uses the pardon power and thinks of the pardon power as a kind of vehicle of, you know, quasi-monarchical authority, which is, of course, what he would like to wield, the fact that there is this alternative source of uh, criminal accountability that as if he becomes president again, or if an ally becomes president cannot be touched, um, I think is extraordinarily important. And that's something to keep in mind.
1: Well, folks, we are just... About out of time for today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with object lessons to think about over the next week until we are able to get back in your ears on next week's episode. Alan, let me hand it to you to get us started with object lessons.
3: So my object lesson is a uh, uh, article in uh, this week's New Yorker. Uh, It's by uh, the amazing Evan Osnos, who is always worth reading. Um, especially uh, when he does stuff in a more kind of humorous vein, which is uh, what this article is. It's called the, uh, the Haves and the Have Yachts. It's about the yacht culture of like ultra billionaires and, you know, super yachts and mega yachts. Apparently there are things called giga yachts. And it's just, it's amazing. It's like the platonic ideal Of what I think a New Yorker article should be in all the best ways. It's beautifully written. It's very entertaining, and it's all this interesting like geopolitics, but it's also like fundamentally very gossipy and a piece out of like the you know it's like a style piece. It's just it's wonderful. It's endlessly entertaining. I actually was listening to it on uh, autumn, which uh, I quite enjoy, but it's also you know very good in prose. Uh, So that is my object lesson. And I have to say, I don't see the appeal of yachts. Maybe it's because I will never be in a position to buy anything more than like a rubber dinghy. So this is just sour grapes. But like, I really don't understand why anyone wants a yacht. It seems like the worst sort of albatross, but they're really fun to read about. So that's my object lesson.
1: I once got to go on a mega yacht with a crew of 12 for just a day cruise uh, as part of some event I was at like 15 years ago. And I got to say, I am not a yacht person either. I'm a big boat person. I'm a big sailboat person because I grew up sailing and I love sailing. Um, But motorboats generally, I I don't like yachts. They always seem strange to me. But after a couple (laughs) hours on that yacht, I I got used to it. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: I have a podcast episode. Um, This is from the excellent show Radiolab, one of the OG podcasts. They have done in recent years a lot of really interesting legal reporting, particularly on the Supreme Court, and they had an episode out last week, which I I listened to while on my trip, about the Daubert family. If you're a lawyer or writer or think about law, that name may sound familiar. This is the family at the center of Daubert v. Merrill Dow, uh, the case that sort of established the standard for introducing scientific evidence in a courtroom. Um, and the the show essentially goes into the story of the family at the center of that litigation. Why they sued? Essentially, the the son, the family was born with a serious birth defect that may have been caused by some medication produced by this company, Merck Dow, uh, that the mother took while while he was in utero. Um, and just it's kind of about not only the case, the litigation, but what it's been, what it was like for this family to go through all of that litigation, what it's been like for them to see the standard used in court cases going forward. And um, I thought it was a, a really fascinating look at kind of a, a, corner of the world that you don't often get a look into. And I will say I think Radio Lab's Supreme Court reporting is extraordinarily good at kind of digging out those little personal stories from under the the kind of the crust of uh legal reasoning and jurisprudence. So highly recommended.
1: Well wonderful. I have to check that out. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I will share the reason why I am up in New York for the evening last evening, uh, which is that I attended a film screening uh, for a, a not a premiere, but a near premiere, the second viewing. Um, for a set of independent film shorts that some wonderful friends of my wife, one of her close childhood friends, and some of her thespian friends um, of different stripes, primarily around New York. I think everyone's from New York. I could be wrong, though. If folks are from other, other places. I apologize. They did something really phenomenal as a project over the pandemic where they got a group of about a dozen or so actors, producers, filmmakers, and did a two-week trip to a location that they then used to film a number of short films that they are presenting as kind of a package it is a super interesting project to see uh and they've been airing them with a couple of other of their friends short films i highly recommend it. i'm not sure where they're viewing them next i'm not sure they know quite yet except for a number of film festivals but it's worth checking out if you can find them anywhere because it's just a really really interesting set of films different ways they use this very historical interesting villa that's in um near a town of Sacchiche, which is what the project's named after in Mexico. It's just a phenomenal project. I highly encourage it. It's fun to see what people can do with independent short films and independent cinema these days, uh, particularly during pandemic times when you might be able to get venues that wouldn't be available otherwise under a particular budget underhand. And they are preparing for their next project as well, which is going to be taking place in Wyoming next year and then returning to Saksheesh for a feature-length project the year after. Um, So I'm going to drop a link in the show notes to the Sakshish project. Uh, If any folks out there are looking to uh, get involved or support some independent film, you should check it out. Uh, My wife and I threw some support their way and are so glad we did. And we're thrilled to be able to attend the premiere. Uh, And it's just a great way to engage a phenomenal artistic venture. Uh, And all these folks have phenomenal visions that they're able to bring to life and share with everyone. And it's just great to see and be a part of. So I would encourage folks to check it out. And maybe I will see you in New York uh, next year for another one of these viewings or somewhere else around the country. Well, folks. For better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our special series on the January 6th investigation, The Aftermath. Be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the gloriously returned and always wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, so long, farewell, avida Wiedersehen, goodbye.